On the moonless night of November 9, 1942, during the height of the Second World War, a German U-boat lay in the waters of the Bay of Chaleur, watching through its periscope, waiting for the lights in the little village of New Carlisle on the Gaspé Peninsula in Quebec to go out. As soon as those lights went out, it would surface to complete its mission, to send a spy ashore into Canada. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes. With your host and author, Andrew McLean. A highway ran across the cliffs, and below was a beach where the U-boat would drop off a Nazi spy as soon as it got dark enough at night, and the traffic on the highway along the cliffs died down. That U-boat's ship logs say, Weather and illumination are favorable. No vessels to be seen. Heavy automobile traffic on both sides of shore. Highways apparently close to the coast. Automobile traffic still remains fairly heavy. However, slowly it gets darker in the towns and habitations. The bay is empty on all sides and clear of vessels. We intend to execute our mission in the morning hours. Until then, we observe. That U-boat had departed Kiel in September of 1942. The Nazis were then at their peak, controlling everywhere from France right to the very outskirts of Moscow. The Battle of the Atlantic was raging as Canada sent enormous fleets of ships carrying food, medical supplies, weapons, and ammunition to Britain, which was desperately trying to survive the punishing German onslaught. U-boats frequently went deep into Canadian waters, going so far as to hunt Canadian ships right in the St. Lawrence River. U-518, however, was not having a very eventful voyage. It managed to go all the way from Germany to Newfoundland without seeing a single Allied ship. For 10 days, it waited around the Strait of Belle Isle, that rather narrow body of water between the northern tip of Newfoundland and Labrador. In those 10 days, all that U-boat saw was two small fishing boats, neither of which had been worth them bothering with. The U-boat's captain bitterly complained in his logbooks. This is a completely dead area. Finally, the submarine received the message it had been waiting for. Penetrate towards objectives BA and BE, 1040 during new moon period for execution of special task. The U-boat's mission was to deliver Agent Werner von Janowski to New Carlisle, a tiny village in Quebec. How he got there, however, was up to the U-boat's commander, who was named Captain Wiseman. He decided to take the long way all the way around Newfoundland in the hope that he could find some Allied boats to sink. And I do mean the long way. He went 950 miles out of his way. Most of the Allied boats were taking shelter in coves, though. The German submarines made the risky move to sneak into Conception Bay and fire some torpedoes at the ship sheltering there. Several of the ships were damaged, and a wharf was destroyed. The Newfoundlanders scrambled aircraft to hunt down this rogue U-boat, and they managed to successfully catch up to it and drop four bombs on it, damaging it moderately. 
Just when the airplanes thought they had the U-boat, a thick fog rolled in and the submarine, with the spy on board, slipped away. Although they didn't actually sink any ships, the event had repercussions as Newfoundland delayed its convoys of ships while it built anti-submarine defenses, which delayed critical goods that Britain needed. The U-boat, on the other hand, decided that after that close call, it had better just complete its mission and drop off the spy without hunting any more ships. It was a little after midnight that November when that U-boat surfaced outside of the tiny coastal village of New Carlisle. At 4.36 in the morning, several shadowy figures got out of that submarine and launched a dinghy. All of a sudden, the car's lights illuminated the surface submarine and the dinghy with the spy in it. The U-boat logs read, A car comes along the road to the left. The road takes a curve just in front of us so that the car's headlights sweep across the water for a brief moment. I'm simply flabbergasted. The Germans ran away and hid inside the U-boat, as if a giant surface submarine was somehow subtle but the car drove away without noticing them. The U-boat's logs continue. In the gleam of its headlights, we can easily recognize the houses standing isolated ashore and all the details. Rather insultingly, the U-boat's captain added, The houses make a dreary impression. A dinghy lands on the beach, and a Nazi spy steps onto Canadian soil. The dinghy rowed back to the U-boat, which soon after dipped into the dark waters and disappeared, heading home to Germany and leaving the spy on the beach all alone. Now, I'm not entirely sure how you might be picturing a Nazi spy looking, standing on its windswept beach on a cold autumn night at five in the morning. But this particular spy is probably shorter than you're picturing, standing at only 5 foot 7 inches, and he probably weighs less than you're picturing at only 150 pounds. He's also probably older than you're picturing at 41 years old, and he probably doesn't cut the picture of Aryan supremacy with his stooped shoulders and his receding hairline. No, Agent Werner von Janowski didn't exactly cut an imposing figure. By his side on that beach was an enormous suitcase. It was a deep-grained leather suitcase, later described as of obviously German manufacture, and it contained a heavy transmitter receiver for contact in Germany. It also contained $4,994 in Canadian currency, which, unknown to the spy, was all outdated money. It had $1,000 of US currency, $20 in gold pieces, coding material, secret writing mediums made out of matches, a 25 caliber pistol that could easily be concealed in the palm of a hand, a set of viciously spiked brass knuckles, several chocolate bars, maps of St. John, Toronto, Montreal, Quebec, and Halifax, a German metal identity disc, a German soldier's paybook complete with an eagle and a swastika on the cover, a Canadian National Registration Certificate identifying the spy as William Branton, who lived at 323 Danforth Avenue in Toronto. Also contained a 1940 Quebec driver's license with that same information, 
and two books in English. One book was a collection of badly written detective stories, and the other book was Mary Poppins. It wasn't the spy's first time in Canada, though. He had immigrated to Ontario in 1930, where he'd spent several years living in the small village named Alisa Craig, 20 miles from London. He worked there as a day laborer, and while he was there, he was known to be a rather patriotic German who bragged about his family having once been some kind of minor nobility and how his father had been a colonel in the First World War. He got into a fistfight with a co-worker when he was working construction in Ontario. The co-worker happened to be a Canadian veteran from the First World War, who, in the words of that town's police chief, didn't like the way Janowski shot off his face about Germany in the last war. Despite his strong and vocal opinions about Germany, townspeople and Elisa Craig actually remember the spy as being friendly and charming, and a very talented cello player. His first stint in Canada was somewhat murky and hard to follow. He seemed to have married a somewhat wealthy Toronto woman, with whom he had a rather tumultuous on-and-off-again relationship. She finally broke up with him after she caught him stealing money from her, and then he moved back to Germany in 1938, which was one year before the war began. And now Werner von Janowski was back in Canada as a spy, standing on a beach in the Gaspé Peninsula. So now what? Well. In the first of what would be a series of rather unusual decisions for a spy in a foreign country, Werner von Janowski decided not to climb up the cliffs and slip away during the night. Instead, he decided to stay on that beach and to take a nap. He wanted to wait until dawn so he could see better while making his way up the cliffs. His orders told him that he was to go down the highway, go walk as far as some CN railroad tracks, hop on a train to Montreal as quickly as possible. There he was supposed to get in touch with Adrian Arcand, the leader of the Canadian Fascist Party. The Nazi leadership in Germany had promised him that Adrian Arcand's Fascist Party would provide him with money and supplies to continue his mission of organizing the Canadian Fascists to spy on Canada and then report back to Germany. Specifically, their mission was to get together an operation to get the message to U-boats waiting out at sea where all of those shipping convoys in Britain would be so that the Nazis could sink them. Apparently, the Nazis were unaware at that time that all the top leaders of the Canadian Fascist Party had been arrested two years earlier. Adrian Arcand himself was currently being held in a prison camp in the woods of New Brunswick, some 30 miles from the province's capital city of Fredericton. It was the same prison camp that we covered in the episode called The Cat Who Stopped the Nazi Prison Break. It was actually rather strange that the Nazis didn't seem to know that Adrian Arcand had been arrested. It wasn't actually a secret. The arrest of the leadership of the fascist political party had been front news all across Canada. When the spy, Agent Werner von Janowski, finally did climb the cliffs in the morning and reach the highway, dragging along his massive suitcase behind him, he made another very strange decision. 
His orders had been to get to Montreal as soon as he could, but instead he made the fateful decision to walk the other way down the highway into the tiny town of New Carlisle. You see, Werner von Janowski wanted to take a bath. In his defense, he had just spent 44 days on a submarine. Submarines were tightly packed with men, and there weren't any showers on board, so perhaps in that context, desperately wanting a bath makes a little more sense. The spy hitchhiked into town, and he went to a hotel where he was checked in by the hotel owner's son, the 23-year-old Earl J. Annett Jr., who immediately noticed how bad the new guest smelled. The spy introduced himself, saying, I am William Branton, a traveling salesman who lives at 323 Danforth Avenue in Toronto, Ontario. I have just arrived on the morning bus. The hotel keeper, Earl J. Annett Jr., was surprised by this. There was only one bus a day in the little village of New Carlisle, and it wouldn't arrive until noon. The spy then lit a cigarette and he handed the empty matchbook to Annette to throw away. The hotel keeper read the package. It said, Fabrique en Belgique. The hotel clerk was surprised. Belgium had been occupied by the Nazis for a couple years by this point. And, as if that wasn't suspicious enough, the spy then went to pay for his hotel room with outdated Canadian banknotes that no one even used anymore. The spy went to his hotel room and he took the bath that he wanted so bad. He must have really wanted the bath because he actually stayed in there for three hours. It must have looked like a raisin when he came out. After emerging from his three hour long bath, the spy ordered breakfast to his room. He ate it and then he immediately left the hotel, despite having paid for the night. As Earl J. Annett Jr. watched the spy go, dragging his giant suitcase behind them, the hotel clerk pieced together the clues in his mind and figured it out. Surely this strange guest at his hotel must be a counterfeiter. And so the hotel clerk phoned Constable Alphonse Deschenaux of the Quebec Provincial Police. While Constable Deschenaux was on his way to the hotel to search the hotel room, the hotel clerk, Earl J. Annett Jr., decided to follow Werner von Janowski to the train station. In the hotel room, the constable found a half-pack of cigarettes that the spy had left behind. They were also made in Belgium. The constable rushed for the train station. Meanwhile, the hotel clerk was at the train station, spying on the spy. As he watched from a safe distance, he saw Janowski pull out a fat roll of large denomination outdated Canadian bills to pay for his train fare. The hotel clerk was now absolutely certain that this stranger was a counterfeiter, so he approached a naval officer who happened to be in the train station and asked him to arrest Janowski for being a counterfeiter before the train departed. The naval officer explained that counterfeiting was a civilian matter and that he couldn't do anything about it. However, the naval officer told the hotel clerk that he would help him locate 
the town's one policeman, Constable Deschanel. The hotel clerk and the naval officer went on a madcap chase through the tiny town, looking for the one police officer, while that one police officer was running around the town looking for the hotel clerk. They somehow managed to miss one another, and the clerk and the naval officer made it back to the hotel to find that the constable was gone. There's only two streets in this town, by the way. It's not very big at all. Meanwhile, the constable got to the train station. He found the clerk had gone back to the hotel, so he rushed back there. They finally managed to successfully find each other in the streets in New Carlisle, and they rushed to the train station together just as the train was about to depart. And together, they confronted the man they thought was counterfeiting money. The one police officer in town demanded that the spy open up his bag. Despite having a gun and brass knuckles on him, Werner von Janowski immediately gave up, declaring, much to the group's astonishment, I am caught. I am a German officer. After his arrest, the RCMP became involved. It was their idea to turn Werner von Janowski into a double agent and to use him to try and get information from his handlers back in Hamburg, in Germany. Janowski was apparently surprisingly easy to convince to become a double agent. Werner von Janowski remained in radio contact with his handlers in Hamburg. He lived with an RCMP officer named Johnny in Montreal under a particularly lax house arrest, and he would radio updates to Germany about Canadian ship movements. Fictional ship movements, that is, made up by the Mounties to try and get Germany to build trust in him so that he could get more information out of them. It's not actually clear that Werner von Janowski's work as a double agent was actually particularly useful. The Nazis didn't give him much information that would be useful to the Allies, and actually they often simply ignored his messages. They would only contact him if he messaged them first, and even then they often didn't bother to reply. This could be because the Mounties were awfully heavy-handed with the movements of their fictional Canadian Navy. For example, they had Janowski tracking the movements of two Canadian aircraft carriers. Canada didn't even have any aircraft carriers. This whole setup remained in place for one whole year until the little Daily Gleaner newspaper in Fredericton, New Brunswick blew the spy's cover when it broke the story that a spy had been captured in the Gaspé Peninsula. It was never actually clear how this tiny local newspaper managed to uncover such a big story with international implications but the story immediately got picked up and reprinted by the country's biggest newspaper, the Toronto Star. And then everyone in Canada knew the story. The unnamed reporter who broke the story outing the gas Bay spy concluded, Whatever other talents the German might have had, he wasn't smart enough to outwit the people of this peninsula. It was a fittingly bungled end to a very strange story. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard.
produced by Jordan Lozier.